Thank you for listening to the Identity House Ministries podcast. We hope you are encouraged and empowered by this week's teaching from Matt Bond. We are on. We're on. All right. Awesome, guys. Well, welcome to the teaching segment of Identity House. Uh, The worship was so good. So good. We learned. I learned a couple new songs tonight. It's amazing. Um, Yeah. So tonight for the teaching, we are going to be doing um, part (laughs) part two. You're good. We're going to be doing part two of our series through the Book of Revelation. following up on what Cam did last week of chapter 1. So tonight we're going to be jumping into uh, the letters to the seven churches. And so tonight's just going to be kind of an intro to that, um, using the first letter, the letter to Ephesus, as kind of a, a base case to work from for the rest of the way. So, uh, but before we get into the teaching, um, I know we have a couple of announcements. Um, we got word today that the blessings table went awesome. Um, so that was good. We're having to, to do it a little differently right now because of the coronavirus stuff. But just because it looks different doesn't mean it's not good. It was, it was awesome, according to the report we got from everybody that was there today. So that's super cool. Uh, the next Blessings Table will be on May the 16th, um, which is a Saturday like always. Um, we've kind of penciled it in for there. And I know that there was an event page on Facebook that was made for that today. 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 So there will be uh, updates uh, posted to that. They will, as always, need volunteers, donations. Um, we're going to try to, well, talking to John and Hannah today, they're going to try to uh, to make things as uh, adaptable as possible to the current situation. So they're going to they're going to try and. Uh, Get stuff out to as many people as possible this go around. So it, it will be good. It will be good. So stay in tune for that type of stuff. Um, the other announcement that I know of is the amazing, wonderful betrothal of Angel and Maggie. <laughs> the engagement. Congratulations, guys. That is amazing. Everybody, round of applause. Woo! Yeah, super, super cool. So we are so excited for those guys. I don't know if they're watching right now, but if they are. We love you guys. We are so happy for you. That is absolutely amazing. Um, okay, I can't. I don't know of any other announcements, but um, if there are, we will post them on Facebook, the Remind, whatever. You guys just continue to to stay in touch with us and be look be on the lookout for uh, the things that we send out through all of our modes of communication. Um, so, with that said, let's just jump into the teaching. I will uh, I will pray, and then we will just dive right in. So, um, Dad, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to meet tonight, uh, both in person and uh, and over Facebook. God, we just uh, we we really miss being together, but in the in the current circumstances, we're we're working with what we have, and that's hey, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. And so, Dad, we are just uh, so excited to dive into your word tonight. Um, because there is so much truth, there is so much good in it. Um, I am personally excited because the, the study of, of Revelation just kind of gets, uh, gets my gears turning, and it's, it's, it's really awesome. So, Dad, we just come before you with humble hearts tonight, looking to learn, looking to grow, um, and just to, uh, we want to put you at the forefront of everything that we do and talk about. Um, so, Dad, as we, as we dive into this word tonight, 
Uh, we want to claim that blessing that you have for us, uh, for those that, that read and hear and understand uh, this, this crazy, amazing book. And uh, we just accept that right now, and we dive in with excitement. So, Father, we give you all the honor and glory and praise that you are due. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, we are doing, like I said, an intro to the letters to the churches. Um, and we are going to start with uh, kind of like a little intro piece, and then we're just going to dive right into the first letter, which is the, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, kind of use that as a, as, a, as a test case or a model by which we can study the remaining six letters. Um, but before we do that, just I just want to dive in by way of review a couple things that are going to be important from chapter one for us to remember as we dive into these letters. So Cameron did an awesome job last week um, <clears throat> uh, giving us kind of an overview of the book of Revelation and of Revelation chapter 1. It was so good. He did such a good job. So I just kind of want to point out a couple of things from that chapter that are going to be important for us moving forward. Um, so let's just open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1 to start with. And I'm just going to read the first six verses and kind of point out a couple of things here. So Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show to his servants things which much, must soon take place. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bears record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Alright, so a couple of things that I just want to point out from this section of Scripture. Um, we can see in the beginning here, the entire book of Revelation is authored by Jesus. It says it right here. Jesus is the author of the entire thing. Okay, And the book itself is based on information that was given to Jesus by the Father. Okay, That's what we read here in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. So this, this entire book of Revelation is one singular revelation. It's not multiple revelations. So if anybody ever says revelations, they're not accurate. <laughs> they, they haven't even read the first sentence. Um, so this, this entire book is one revelation authored by Jesus and given to him by the Father. Okay, point, point number two that I want you guys to... to um, to notice here is that though Jesus is the author, he sent and signified this, this message, this book, to his chosen scribe, who was the Apostle John. So Jesus is, is the one that is, that is authoring this thing, and he's, he sent it and rendered it into signs so that John can understand it and write it down for, for a record. Okay, So Jesus is the author. The information that he is he is writing was that he is giving was all 
revealed to him from Father God, and he's, he's, uh, he's rendered all of that information into signs and given it to John to write down. That's what Revelation is. That's what this entire book is. Okay? This book uh, is meant to be open and available to all people. Okay? To all people. Um, <clears throat> there's this, this promise in here. It says, Blessed is he that readeth. In verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. That, that phrase, blessed is he, that means whoever reads this thing, anybody, whoever reads it, this is for you. This is for you. So, uh, <clears throat> although uh, the original recipients of this book are these seven churches that are mentioned in verse 4, which says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. This book is for us. And this book is the only book in the entire Bible that makes the type of claim that, hey, you are blessed if you read and understand this. No other book in the Bible makes that type of promise or that type of claim. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously claiming to be something special on its own merit. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, all right, let's, let's keep moving on. We're going to jump down to uh, verse 10. And we're going to read verse 10 and 11. Um, so this is, this is John talking. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice like a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So, here we have the recipients of this letter that is the book of Revelation identified. Okay, It's these seven churches. And these are the churches that we're going to be studying. These are the churches that have individual letters penned to them uh, in chapters 2 and 3. Okay, So, they're identified here. And again, we have uh, Jesus identified as the author of, of, of these letters, okay? It says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Um, and so he's, he's, got, um, he's got these letters that he's going to write to these churches that are named here. And actually, uh, the way that it's like written out and you see it here, the entire book of Revelation was one letter that was sent to all seven churches. Okay? So every one of those individual churches, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, they were getting an individual letter to themselves in chapters 2 and 3, but they were also getting that as part of this entire book. Okay? So that's just kind of the particulars of everything. Um, <clears throat> one question that I wanted to ask you guys to think about as we go is there's... There's these specific seven churches that are the recipient of this letter that is the book of Revelation and that have these individual letters penned to them. But why these seven? There are so many churches to choose from in, in the first century. I mean, the church at Jerusalem, the church at Rome, the church at Antioch, the church at, you know, Derby and Thessalonica and Colossae. Like, why these seven? Okay, I want you guys to think about that as we go and we'll try to answer that by the time that we're done. Um, but it's, it's curious as to why Jesus would choose these specific seven, and I think there's a really important reason that he does. All right, so let's, 
let's jump in now that we've kind of laid that little bit of a foundation that Jesus is the author um, and that these churches are the original recipients. Let's jump into uh, into the letter of the church of at, at Ephesus, uh, chapter two. Important thing to note: we're just going to read the entire letter, um, which goes down through verse seven. We're going to read it and then we're going to kind of go back uh, and pick it apart. But important thing to note: my Bible, all the words are in red. Jesus is talking. Okay, that's not evidence just by the red letters, but also. Uh, also, by in uh, in verse verse seventeen, he identifies himself as the speaker in all in in this large section of scripture. So Jesus is talking right here. Jesus is authoring this letter, and John is being ascribed for him and, and writing it down. So, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Let's read it. Okay, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write: He who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, says these things. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles, but are not, and have found them to be liars. You have endured and have been patient, and for my name's sake have labored and have not grown weary. But I have something against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works you did at first, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give permission to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay. So, super interesting letter. We're going to dive in and pick it apart. Um, it is really, really helpful when you're studying something like this to kind of put it in an outline. And that's, that is something that I learned, um, I learned to do in, in my initial study of this and learning about this first from uh, the late Dr. Chuck Missler, who I, I owe a debt of gratitude to for, for teaching me a lot of this stuff. Uh, through his YouTube series and all of the, all of the stuff that he's he's put out over the years, um, it's been been really good. So I learned I kind of learned how to dive into this stuff and uh, how to pick this stuff apart and, and figure it out just from listening to a lot of his teachings. So really good. I highly recommend his stuff if you can if you can go find it. I can point you in the right direction. But uh, he's the first person that I saw make an outline of this. And so we're going to kind of make an outline for ourselves and we're going to follow it along to give us kind of an idea of what's going on. So there are seven, there are going to be seven elements in our outline. Okay. In our outline for this letter and for all the letters, actually, we've got these seven elements. We have first an addressee. Okay. Who the letter is addressed to. Two. We're going to have a title of Christ that's given. Christ identifies himself with a specific title. Number three, we have a section of commendation. Jesus commends the church for something that, for something that they are actively doing or have done. Um, number four, we have some concerns. Jesus lists some things that he's concerned about in relation to the way the church is operating. Uh, number five, we've got an exhortation where Jesus exhorts them into some, some specific behavior or to continue to do something or to, to change something about the way that they're operating. Uh, 
Um, number six, we've got a closing, which is actually the same in all seven letters. The closing is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to figure out what that's all about kind of towards the end of this. Uh, and then number seven, we have a promise to the overcomer, um, which is what this letter ends with. So those are our seven elements. Addressee, title of Christ, commendation, concerns, exhortation, closing, promise to the overcomer. Those are our, our seven points of this outline. So we're just going to, going, to, going to go through them one by one, and it'll give us a really good flavor and idea of what's going on. So, let's start with number one, the address E. Who is this letter addressed to? Well, obviously, uh, verse one of chapter two, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. All right, so <clears throat> this letter is addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Cameron talked about last week what that word angel means. Uh, there's a couple different ideas of what it means. It's either like a, a divine messenger um, I mean, you guys have ideas of what angels are. They're, you know, spiritual beings that act on behalf of God. Um, it, it's also proposed that this word angel could also mean like a bishop or a pastor of the church, someone that's in charge. In any case, it just means that, you know, someone who can relay this message, right, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Someone, to someone who can relay this message, who is in a position of authority of this, in this church at Ephesus, write this to him. To get the message across, okay? So that's what the, the angel thing is all about. But um, let's talk about the church at Ephesus specifically. Because um, this, is, this is one of these seven churches that Jesus chose to write to for whatever reason. So let, let's kind of talk about them for a second. Um, the name Ephesus itself has a variety of possible meanings in terms of uh, the, the transliteration and that type of thing. Um, and those meanings could turn out to have relevance to the letter as a whole. Um, and we'll kind of talk about that as we go. But one of, one of the meanings of, of the word Ephesus is, is uh, like a, as a definition, the word permitted. So they're permitted, which is an, just an interesting word. Another possible definition of this word Ephesus or transliteration, not transliteration, translation is a desired one or a darling. So that's pretty interesting. And that could, come, that could potentially come into play um, as, as we go. But uh, that's all to just say, hey, the that's the name of the city. Whether or not that directly relates to the people that are there, who knows. But I will say that we really do believe that everything that's in here, God has put here for a reason and on purpose and not by accident. So I think it probably means something. Um, <clears throat> there are multiple other writings in the scripture that are addressed to Ephesus. You obviously has, have the book of Ephesians, the four chapter book. Um, the entire book of First John was addressed to the church at Ephesus. Um, there is a farewell address that Paul gives to the elders of the church at Ephesus in uh, Acts chapter 20. So this is a pretty prominent church in terms of the first century and the things that are going on in, uh, in this like, apostolic movement that's, that's happening uh, post-Pentecost and post the dispersion from Jerusalem. So this is an important place. Um, so based on the fact that this letter is addressed to the church at Ephesus, we automatically know that whatever comes next is 
totally applicable and relevant to this specific church at this specific time in history. Okay? So, as we go, we're going to be talking about a couple different levels of application or levels of analysis. This is level of analysis number one. This letter applies on a local level in the current time period that this is happening. Okay? That... So the people who were a part of this church, the stuff that they're about to read that is part of this message would make sense and would apply to their lives immediately in that day and time. Okay, so that's a little about Ephesus. If you go into uh, Chuck Missler's teaching on, on this uh, letter, he gives an entire whole long uh, thing about Ephesus as a city and some of the, some of the things that they were into. We're not going to take the time to do that because... You, that's kind of extracurricular stuff and is beyond uh, what, what we've got just in Scripture in front of us. But it's a worthwhile, worthwhile study. So let's just keep going. Number two in our outline. This is the second part of verse one. To the angel of the church at, Ep church at Ephesus write, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, says these things. Okay, so we know that Jesus is the author. He's the one that's saying these things. This is what, for the purposes of this letter, he decides to refer to himself as. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Um, this is really cool because it is a direct reference to something that we read in Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to find, as we go through these letters, that every title of Christ that is used here is referencing something that we read about him in chapter 1 of Revelation. It's really, really, really cool. So, if you turn back to Revelation chapter 1, um, in verses 12 through 13, um, and also verse 16, um, you see this passage. Um, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with, a, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Uh, skip down to verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So, this is the, this is the, the description that... Revelation 2 chapter or chapter 2 verse 1 is pointing back to. So this title of Christ points back to this and it again confirms that hey Jesus is the author of this letter because the he that's you know he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand back here in Revelation chapter 1 is identified as the son of man. That's Jesus, okay? That's Christ. Uh this his identity is made even more obvious as you continue to go uh, in, in chapter 1, reading like verse 18 and 19, um, which says, I am he who lives, though I was dead. Look, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Okay, that's, that's Jesus. That only points to one person, Jesus. Okay, so we know that this title is a title of Christ. He that holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Well, what does that mean exactly? What does that mean exactly? Um, if we read, Cameron did an amazing job talking about this last week. 
this was probably my favorite thing that he talked about last week in, in the Revelation 1 study, is this talk of the, the stars and the candlesticks. So if you read verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So this is, this is super, super cool. I don't want you guys to miss this. What Jesus is saying here is, I hold the seven churches in my hand, but I also walk in the midst of them. That's super cool. Mm -hmm. You couldn't draw that, <laughs> right? right? You can't draw that, but it makes sense. You know it makes sense because Jesus is here in our midst. He walks around us. He communes with us. He, he fellowships with us because when two or, three, two or three are gathered together, like he is in our midst. But at the same time, he holds us in his hand. He has control and he has protection. Mm -hmm. that's super cool it's a really really cool um, just a visual type of thing and so what Jesus is uh, establishing here is by using this specific title is hey I uh, have relationship with you but I also have protection and authority over you that's what he's saying okay and that's going to come into play as we go on so that's, that's kind of the, the point of the title of Christ that's used here. Used here. Uh, please go back and listen to last, last week's uh, uh, teaching that Cameron did when he was talking about the candlesticks. That part was so cool because he, he just gave all of the different points and the different reasons prophetically of how candlesticks point to the church. Really, really cool. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Um, part number three. The commendation. So we're going to find this in uh, verses 2 and 3. So let's, let's read this again. Jesus commends uh, the church at Ephesus for this. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles but are not, and have found them to be liars. You have endured and have been patient, and for my name's sake, have labored and have not grown weary. So that's, that's uh, all of the stuff that Jesus is, is commending them for. So uh, what, are, what are these individual things he's commending them for? He says, I know thy works, their labor, their patience, how they can't bear those that are evil, how they've tried those that say they're apostles, they found them liars says they've borne, they've had patience, they've labored, they've not fainted. Um, all this stuff is centered around their works, their deeds, and their sound doctrine. What Jesus is saying is the stuff that you've done, the stuff that you've been up to in your activity, in your works, in your deeds, I have seen that and I commend you for it. He's saying there are these false apostles that have come in and you've tested them and you've found them liars. That is, that is a direct uh, pointing to their sound doctrine, right? So this is the stuff that Jesus is commending them for. Um, the sound doctrine, like it says here, involved a weeding out of, of false apostles. And that is super, super interesting because if you go back in your, in your own study time, we're not going to go there now for just the sake of time, but if you Go back and read what I was talking about in Acts chapter 20, Paul's farewell address to the elders of the church at Ephesus. One of the things that he tells them 
is he warns them of coming false apostles. Right? He warns them of wolves coming in amongst the sheep. And he says something about there are even those of you that will rise up and, and like persuade the people to fall away. Stuff like that. That's so cool because Jesus appears now to be commending them for something that Paul had warned them about some 30 years earlier. That's very cool. Super cool. Yeah, that's super cool. That's super cool. So they heeded Paul's warning, and Jesus commends them for it. So that's awesome. But the other stuff that he's commending them for is the stuff that they've done, their works, their deeds, their, their patience, their laboring, all of that type of stuff. They were, they were busy about the king's business, let's put it that way. And he liked it. Jesus, Jesus was like, good job. You guys are doing great. You guys are doing great. <clears throat> um, I'm going to come back to that. All right, so that's, that's, uh, that's Jesus' commendation. All of that stuff, they were doing good in a lot of areas, and Jesus is happy about it. Um, so now we're going to move on to the concerns. And if you, if you just read this in order, you, we, can, we can read verse 3, and then we'll read into the concerns. So let's go back to Revelation 2, 3, and we'll read through uh, verse 4. You have endured and have been patient, and for my name's sake have labored uh, and have not grown weary. Nevertheless... I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So, if you're reading all this in order, he's like, you're doing good, you've labored, you've been patient, I know your works, I've seen all the good stuff you've done, your sound doctrine, nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, I have something against you, because you have left your first love. Um, so, if... If I were someone in the church at Ephesus at, at this time, and I was reading, and be like, "Yeah, we're doing great." Oh, <laughs> oh, maybe we're not. Nevertheless, that nevertheless hits really hard. Um, so let let's talk about let's talk about what Jesus is concerned about. What what does this mean that they've left their first love? This is what Jesus is not happy about. So the word first here, when he says you have left your first love, the word first is a Greek word protos, um, which uh, in your strongest concordance is G4413, and it means foremost in time, place, order, or importance. Uh, it also means before, beginning, best, chiefest, <laughs> First of all, or former. Um, so in the outline of biblical usage you can pull up in your uh, Blue Letter Bible, it literally, uh, one, one of the prime usages of this word is first in rank, right? You have left the love, you have left the love that should be first in rank in your life, right? That's what you've left. That's what I'm not happy about. Well, when I was kind of going through this, what, did that, what does that make you guys think of? It made me think of, what does Jesus say? What is the first and greatest commandment? Right? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. So basically, what I think Jesus is saying here, he's, he's saying, your works, your deeds, and your doctrine are not enough. What I desire is love, devotion, and a personal relationship with you. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, uh, all your heart and all thy soul and with all thy mind. Right? That's what they weren't doing. 
that's what they weren't doing. They left that first love, those first works that they did when they first became believers and they were first part of a church. That personal devotion was no longer there. They were too busy about the king's business that they were no longer just about relationship with the king. Um, and I'm sure if you were to talk to Cameron about this, he would say, that's Mary and Martha, <laughs> right? Right? That's a Mary versus Martha comparison. Yeah. The church at Ephesus was a Martha, right? Jesus, you know, commended Martha for doing her work, but he said, wow, what did he say? I can't think off the top of my head. Whatever he said about Mary, um, it doesn't matter. But Mary chose the more important thing, right? Mm -hmm. She chose personal devotion and worship yeah. in the context of, of relationship and just laying at his feet. What Jesus is saying is the church at Ephesus had left that behind. That going before his feet in personal, private worship, in devotional time, in commitment to him on a relational level was no longer there. They were just busy bees being about the king's business and doing things that looked good and that did good for the kingdom, but on a personal level, the relationship wasn't there. And so... Uh, that's the nevertheless, right? You've got all this good stuff. Nevertheless, like, I don't know you. <laughs> I don't know you personally. Um, and that's, that's where we come to this, this exhortation, which is number five on our outline, um, which we're going to see starting in verse five. <coughs> so this is Jesus' exhortation. In, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Goodness. So, in light of these concerns that Jesus has, he's got this exhortation um, for the church at Ephesus. And so, Revelation 2.5 says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works you did at first, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick from its place, unless you repent. But this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So let's talk about this a little bit. <clears throat> so in response to the nevertheless, you guys have left your first love. What does he say? Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen and repent. Do the first works. Do those devotional things. Come to me in worship. Come to me out of a heart of desiring relationship. Pray. Fast, do those things that bring you closer together with me because I desire a relationship with you. Repent from all of your busybodiness and come back to me, to relationship. Do the first works. This is what Jesus is telling them to do in response to his concerns. Um, and I think he would point them back to that first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Um, then what else does he say? So, if they don't repent and do the first works, he says, or else, or else, I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So, Jesus has given them an ultimatum. This is an ultimatum. He's saying, come back and do the first works. Remember this first and greatest commandment. 
repent from your busybodiness, come back to me with a heart of devotion and relationship, or else I will remove your candlestick out of its place. He's saying, and, and this, is, this is the part that points back to that title of Christ, right? That title of Christ established, I am the one that holds the seven stars in my hand and walks in the midst of the candlesticks. I am the one that has authority and access to this church to remove it from its place of influence if I so desire. I have that power, I have that authority, I have that ability. That's why he used that title in, 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 verse, uh, in verse 1 of this chapter, is because he's saying, he's saying now, or else I will come quickly and remove your candlestick out of his place. They should know at this point that he can do that if he wants. <laughs> and he's giving them this ultimatum, repent, or else that's what's going to happen. <clears throat> um, so that kind of leads one to think about well, where's the church at Ephesus today? If you go to Ephesus today, it is a bunch of ancient ruins. It is a bunch of ancient ruins. That church no longer exists because the city of Ephesus, it's like nobody lives there, <laughs> right? So that church no longer has its place of prominence. Um, you know, I, I can't say for sure. This is obviously pure speculation unless, you know, some historian can tell me what went down in that city after they received this letter. But uh, it doesn't seem like they repented. It doesn't seem like they went back to their first love and did those first works of, of devotional relationship uh, with Christ. And so... Maybe that's what happened. I don't know, pure speculation, but Jesus did give them that ultimatum. And that's, uh, he asked them to repent. And that's, that's what happened. So uh, let's go back here. There is this really interesting, interesting verse here at the end of this exhortation. So after he's asking them to repent and threatening them, Threatening them doesn't sound very nice, but that's, that's kind of what it is. <laughs> Threatening them that he would remove their candlestick from its place, that he would remove their church from its place of prominence and influence and even existence, possibly. Um, in verse 6, he says, But this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, we've got to figure out who the Nicolaitans were yeah. <laughs> and what, were they, what they were all about. Um, so... It's obviously a good thing that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans because Jesus also hates them. Well, what, who were they and what were their deeds? So there's a couple different theories that are out there. There's actually several different theories, but two of them are kind of the most prominent uh, that I could find in, in doing research and reading commentaries and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, the first one, the first theory, the first idea of who the Nicolaitans were was that the Nicolaitans were followers of the heretic deacon of Jerusalem, Nicholas, who was actually one of the, uh, the deacons that was ordained aside uh, Philip and Stephen. Um, there's ideas out there and some historical textual evidence to say that this guy upheld um, the ideas of eating food that was sacrificed to idols and he had a complete indifference and even um, uh, even uh, encouraged people to commit fornication and adultery. Okay, 
um, and that he was a part of a part of the the church at Jerusalem and had some sort of influence there, and he claimed apostolic authority for this these opinions that he had. Okay, that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, and that committing fornication and adultery wasn't that big a deal, and you know it was permitted in the church. That's one idea. That's pretty radical. <laughs> I don't tend to think that that is uh, who the Nicolaitans were specifically because of something uh, that we'll see um, in the letter to the church at Pergamos, I think. Yep, letter to the church at Pergamos. So we'll get there when we get there. But I think uh, this is the, the, the other prominent theory that I came across and um, seems to have some merit that Nicolaitans, that this word Nicolaitan is actually an untranslated Greek word, okay, that was used to identify this group of people. Um, and so this untranslated word literally means victorious over people or destruction of the people. And that's uh, basically pulled from the two Greek words that are the root words of this Nicolaitan word, Nico which is the word for victory in Greek, and laos, which is the word for people, or more specifically, the laity. Okay, so it's the, this idea of victory over the lay person, victory over the laity, the, the general people, or destruction of the lay person, the general people. The idea is that the people who were identified as these Nicolaitans were purveyors of a doctrine of the first biblical not biblical, the first church clergy that was ruling over the, the congregation, essentially. Ruling over in terms of dictating their lives and having so much prominence over them that you know they were essentially monarchs and dictators. So this sect of people had the idea that the clergy had all authority and that they should lord it over the lady of the church. Um makes sense that that's something that Jesus might hate, <laughs> right? Because Jesus laid out what the, what the church structure should look like. He said, uh, whoever would seek to save his life shall lose it. Whoever would give up his life shall find it. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Jesus uh, exemplified servant leadership. Um, he washed his disciples' feet. Like that is, that is what the church hierarchical structure should look like. The leaders are at the bottom. And so the idea that uh, the Nicolaitans were people that um, pushed this doctrine of clergy ruling over the lay people, that, that Jesus hated that, that makes a lot of sense, if that's, if that's what's actually being talked about here. Um, <clears throat> it, could also be, it could also be the first explanation of um, purveying doctrines of um, fornication and adultery and eating food sacrificed to idols, because that actually was stuff that was going on back then. It actually was. So either way, Jesus didn't like it. Um, and the people at the church at Ephesus didn't like it either. They hated it, and Jesus commended them for it. So he said, but this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You hate the same people as me. Yeah, <laughs> you hate the same people as me. Good job. Good job. Yep. So now we kind of get to the closing of the letter. Um now that we've gone through um, the, the commendations, the concerns, the exhortation, now we get to this closing that is in, in every one of the letters to the churches. So, the beginning of verse 7, it says, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, <clears throat> that phrase, he that has an ear, that means everybody, right? Everybody has an ear. Everybody has an ear. That means everybody. Therefore, uh, what we can deduce from that is that not only were the contents of this letter meant for those specific people uh, living in Ephesus, but they were also meant for whoever is willing to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that takes us to our second level of application. Not only was there a current and local application that could be applied from this letter, but there is also a personal application, right? So it's applicable to um, the, the people in the church at Ephesus in 90-whatever A.D. It's also applicable to me, you, 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 in 2020 America, right? He who has an ear, let him hear. So that's the second level of application. It's, it was current and local back then. And it's personal to us now. The second thing that we get from it is, it says, he who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's plural. Okay? Churches is plural. <clears throat> what that means is that, although this letter is addressed specifically to Ephesus, the Spirit is speaking through it a message that was intended for and relevant to all churches. Okay? This letter is relevant to every Bible-believing church that's ever been around. Okay? And uh, that's where we kind of get our, our third level of application. Not only is it was it local and current to the church of Ephesus at that day, not only is it personal to us that we can get something from this personally, but third, it has a church-wide application. This is relevant to every church that's ever existed for all time. Okay? And the reason that that's important is you can go through, and I will say, this, this statement is in all seven letters. It's at the end of all seven letters. And so what that means is we can go through each of these seven letters and diagnose our current church based on what we see in these letters. Jesus says, you're doing good here. Nevertheless, I have this against you. How much of that applies to Identity House? How much of that applies to, you know, your, your, the church your family goes to? Like, it's applicable here now today and to every church that you've ever been in. And so we can do a diagnosis based on what we see from these letters of every church that we've ever attended. My, my first church was, you know, 30% Ephesus, 20% Smyrna, you know, 40% Thyatira, like we had these different elements. Jesus would have commended us on this stuff, and he would have uh, had concerns about this stuff, and he would have exhorted us to do this. And we can and should be doing that for our current church here today. Okay, so there is church-wide application. <clears throat> so those are our, our, the three different levels of analysis that we've hit so far. There's there's the local and current one to this particular church that Jesus chose. There is the personal one to each of us individually. Um, I can tell you for me personally, on an individual level, this letter really speaks to me. And this, and this can really, really speak to a lot of people who are in 
positions of ministry because ministry is all about doing stuff for the kingdom. And it is very, very easy to forget and to lay aside your personal, devotional, relational relationship time with Christ. It's very, very easy to do. It's very, very easy for us to be uh, a type of the church at Ephesus. Um, and so I would, I would really encourage you guys to examine your lives and say, how, how Ephesian am I? <laughs> right? How Ephesian am I in my life right now? How much, of a, how much of a Martha am I and not a Mary? How much of a, uh, a busybody am I doing the works of the king that I, I don't have time for the king himself in relationship? So that's, that's the one that like speaks to me personally the most because, man, it applies. It definitely applies, especially being in a position where we're actively doing ministry. Um, so that's really important. And then the, the, the third one we talked about, a church-wide application where we can say, hey, does our church look like this? <laughs> How much does Identity House look like this? How much are we busybodies? How much are we neglecting the first and greatest commandment? How much have we departed from our first love, our first, you know, that first taste that we had of, of being a believer and being saved and like desiring relationship with Christ? How, how much have we left that? How far have we strayed? Like, it applies on a corporate level. So that's so important. All right, so those are the three levels of application we've hit so far. Now let's move on to the promise of the overcomer. Promise to the overcomer. This is our, our seventh and final element of this letter. This is in the second part of verse 7. It says, To him who overcomes, I will give permission to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> so, to him that overcometh, this, this person, this whoever this is, the, the him that overcomes, this appears to me to refer to whoever heeds the message of the letter, right? How do you overcome in this context? You overcome by heeding Jesus' exhortation to return to the first works. You overcome by writing those things in your life that Jesus is concerned about. Okay? That's how you become him that overcometh. That's how you become that guy. That's, that's who, who this promise is for. That person. That person that writes the ship. That person that um, abides by the things that Jesus is trying to get across in this letter. And so what is the promise that's given? Uh, it says, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's really cool because it's, it's a direct allusion to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God, right? The tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve uh, <clears throat> essentially were uh, sharing a life of immortality, walking in the presence of God, being able to eat from the tree of life, never, uh, you know, never dying. Like they had perfect, uninterrupted, unhindered communion with Christ. And so this promise to him that overcometh is saying, if you abide by what I'm saying and if you make it to the end having heeded all of my words and the things that I want you to do, this is what you get. I'm going to bring you back to a state that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. 
unhindered relationship with me, right? You will be in the midst of the paradise of God with access to the tree of life. That is a direct, uh, a direct reference to eternal life. Eternal life. He who gets, he who eats of the tree of life has life eternal. Okay. So what Jesus is saying is, you know, uh, the overcomer can expect to be returned to that original state of life eternal in full communion and uninterrupted relationship with God. That is so cool because it directly relates to everything that was in the letter, right? The letter is, you left your first love. You left your devotional, relational time with me. Now, if you overcome and return to that, I will give you that forever. Forever. That's awesome. I will give you that forever. Um, so I think that's awesome. Uh, all of the promises to the overcomer in all seven letters are all referencing what our place will be in eternity. Okay, we're gonna go. We're gonna go through all seven as we go over the next several weeks. We're gonna talk about uh, <clears throat> the letters to each of the churches. Every one of them has a promise to the overcomer. Every one of those promises deals with uh, your state of being in eternity. And so for this one, uh, our state of being in eternity, in eternity, if we overcome, if we abide by that first commandment and, you know, return back to Christ and are obedient to Him, our place in eternity is, well, living for eternity in the paradise of God with Him uninterrupted in relationship forever. That's what we can expect for eternity if we overcome in the manner that Jesus prescribed. That's awesome. That is there is so much hope attached to that. There is so much goodness on the other side of eternity from here that we can expect if we have that relationship with Christ. He will give it to us uninterrupted for eternity. I think that is amazing. Okay, so that is the letter to the church at Ephesus from start to finish. Um, I want to talk about a couple of key takeaways that we can get from this as we move forward and as we talk about all of uh, the subsequent letters individually. So, first key takeaway, Jesus is the author of all seven letters. <laughs> Jesus is the author of all seven letters. He had a reason for, uh, for choosing each of these churches that he was writing to, and we'll talk about that. Uh, the next key takeaway is the seven elements that we used in the analysis of, of this letter. So the addressee, the title of Christ, the commendation, the concerns, the exhortation, the closing, and the promise of the overcomer. We can keep that exact framework and lay it over every one of the subsequent letters and it will give us an idea of what's going on. Uh, it is a super useful outline and a super useful framework that we can, we can use to figure out what Jesus' diagnosis of each church is. And so we're going to employ that, uh, that outline as we go to figure out exactly what's going on. Um, the, next, uh, the next key takeaway here, um, so it appears that Jesus chose these specific churches, and this is, this is an answer to that question that I asked you guys at the beginning. Why these seven churches? Why these seven? 
uh, it appears that he chose these seven specifically uh, because he desired uh, he desired to choose churches that he could write to that would have messages that would apply on multiple levels, right? If he wrote a, if he wrote to some church that just had something going on that only ever applied to that church and never applied to anyone personally or to any other church in the future, it wouldn't make sense for this. He wouldn't be able to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, because it doesn't apply to everybody. He chose these specific churches because what they had going on applied to them, applies to us personally, and applies to every church that there will ever be until he comes back. That's why he chose these churches. Okay? At least it appears to me. That's obviously my, my take on it. You can dispute me on that if you like, but it makes sense. And that's why we talked about these different levels of analysis. This, this local and current analysis to the Ephesians of 90-whatever AD, the personal analysis to me and to you and to you, the church-wide analysis that, uh, that we can... We can view every church that we've ever been a part of and every church that there ever has been in, in terms of history uh, with, with the, the seven church lens over it to see, hey, you're, you're this much Ephesus, you're this much Smyrna, you're this much Sardis, you're this much Pergamos. Like, we, can, we can diagnose a church based on what is in these letters. So that's really, really cool. And we're going to do a diagnosis of each church as we read the letter based on uh, based on what's in it and based on the, the different elements that are there. Um, so I think I think that is that is so so cool. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about that's not really a, a takeaway from what we've talked about, but there is I think and you know I've gotten this from a couple good scholars that I, I respect and I have read their stuff and it makes sense to me. Uh, that there is a fourth level of analysis, a fourth level of application, and it's a prophetic one. A prophetic one. Um, so this this idea that I'm about to share with you specifically comes from a guy named Cyrus Schofield. He's the first person that suggested this back in the uh, the early 1900s, and it's this idea that uh, he put forth in. Uh, this book that he wrote, Notes on the Bible, um, that the seven letters to these churches in Revelation prophetically foretell the various eras of church history that were to follow. That is a crazy idea. Okay, let me say that again. That the letters to the seven churches, each letter prophetically represents an era of church history that we now today can look back on and see. So it's this idea that uh, the church to Ephesus, or the letter to Ephesus, um, that that church represents that first era of church history following the inception of the church at Pentecost, the apostolic church. It's this idea that the following letter that we're going to read next week, uh, both Smyrna and Pergamos, that those two letters prophetically represented at that time the two eras of church history to follow the apostolic church, the, the persecuted church, uh, you know, the, the time of persecution that was perpetrated by Nero and the other Roman emperors and stuff. And then following that, the, you know, what, what this guy calls the married church, where 
the church becomes married to the state of Rome, where the church, where Christianity becomes the state religion, and effectively the church is married to the state. That that letter prophetically foretells that era of church history and diagnoses what that era of church history would be like, and it goes on forward. And so we can keep that in mind as we go, and it's a very controversial viewpoint, but I will say the reason that people believe this to be true is that if the letters were in any different order, it wouldn't work. But the fact that they are in this order, it works perfectly. That's crazy. So that is a potential fourth level of analysis that we can look at and blow my mind. <laughs> blows my mind because uh, there, there's additional evidences for it that we'll talk about um, when we get into the church at Thyatira because that one prophetically foreshadows, you know, according to people that hold to this theory, uh, that letter prophetically foreshadows the medieval church and essentially Catholicism. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of scholars like it's almost a consensus of scholars that believe that the letter to the church at Thyatira directly applies to the Catholic Church. So, uh, very, very interesting, and it, it fits almost too well for it not to be true. And so, I'm not going to say that it's true. I want you guys to go home, do your own research, look into this stuff. I just want to whet your appetite for it, because it, my, when my appetite got wet for this stuff, I was like, wow, this is so cool, i got to figure it out. <laughs> It's awesome. So uh, there are there are clear, whether you hold to that or not, there are clear prophetic implications uh, that lead us to believe that whatever is in these letters can apply to us today and applies to churches as a whole. And so we need to take this stuff very seriously and diagnose what's going on in our personal lives and in our church lives by what's in here. Because Jesus is the author of this stuff. So it's important. It's so, so, so important. Um, and so, with that being said, next week we'll get into the letters of Smyrna and Pergamos. Um, and as we go, we'll probably get more into the, the Revelation stuff that you guys are interested in, in terms of the rapture and the second coming and all of that, all of that interesting stuff. Um, because there are some direct references in these letters to those things, which is really, really interesting and fascinating. But uh, as I said a couple, couple minutes, a couple seconds ago, I want you guys to not take anything that I'm saying for granted and not as true. Go do your research. Go, go find like some good sources to see if this stuff is is legit. Um, because that's the only way. That's the only way to do it. You have to be convinced in your own mind. Um, it does get pretty easy when we go expositional like we have been doing verse by verse and a lot of it's self-explanatory but some of these prophetic implications are very important but very up in the air because there are good scholars on, on both sides of some of these issues like the Nicolaitan thing um, there are good scholars on both sides of that issue and who think different things so go do your own research and come to your own conclusions but I really really hope that this is uh, interesting to you guys and gets you uh, fired up to, well, on a personal level, just go back and do the first works, that first and greatest commandment. I mean, that, I think that's the most important level of analysis right there is the personal one. It's the personal one. Go back, do
do the first works. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Um, seek Him in relationship and in devotion. That's the most important thing. Thank you for listening to this message on the Identity House Ministries podcast. If you are interested in finding out more about our ministry, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash Identity House. We pray that today's teaching brings you in closer relationship with God the Father and empowers you to walk in your God-given identity.